Hello. Nice <laughs> to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you too, me, even though we talk a lot in general. Yeah. No one else knows? I mean, they do now since we don't know. <laughs> Welcome to Poor People, a podcast for people of color to discuss their socioeconomic backgrounds and to share stories and financial experiences of today. I'm one of your hosts, Jackie. Hi, I'm me. And today we will be talking about politics. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Considering how politics tend to be very divisive nowadays, why are we talking about politics today, me? It affects everyone's life, whether they get the tail end of it, it controls how money gets distributed, uh, what the services people get from the education system to social welfare, like tons of things. And at the end of the day, the people that get elected are the people that get to control the policies on these things that affect your everyday life. Indeed. Whether or not we like it, politics is deeply ingrained in our everyday lives, which is kind of shitty because sometimes when you... Watch the news and see how politics is, especially nowadays with the COVID-19 stuff. It's it's kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah, it's very polarizing in, in today's environment as well. So a lot of thoughts and ideas about certain policies are on opposite ends of the spectrum. So mm-hmm. not everyone can be happy and not everyone is happy. I feel like that's a general thing, though. Not you can't really please everyone in politics everyone there will be someone that will be unhappy Um, I I feel like politics is about finding the balance in the middle if that exists (laughs) (laughs) I mean I suppose I I mean I guess that's that's very subjective right what where the middle is (laughs) because yeah our our middle is very different from the European middle (laughs) yeah exactly I think it's a scale um and it and it swings depending on what actually is happening in the real world like today (laughs) COVID-19 that's I feel like that's all we talk about nowadays specifically politics though something that I have always found interesting when I was growing up um and to now I I feel like growing up I've never really noticed really Asian Americans being involved in politics. So I decided to look up the stats on that. And that actually it is true. Historically, Asian Americans have pretty low voter participation rates. I'm sure you guys know that uh, Asian Americans in terms of like all the different immigrant populations tends to be the model minority because we work really hard and we don't really say anything. Um, and that's true when it comes to voting. When I was looking this up on the Pew Research Center site, it was it showed that in 2014, we had a record low of 27% participation in Asian American voters. Today, um, the, the latest stats I looked at was, I think, 2018. It, we have around 30% compared to the national voting participation rate of 50 percent uh so it's it's pretty low um yeah is is that distributed across the board across the country and were you able to see if certain parts of the country participated more uh i didn't look at the specific regional differences but something Mm -hmm. i did see is when i looked at some stats that was provided by a group called the aapi it showed there has been an increasing number of asian american voters participating 
um, in the voting process and registering and, and actually voting. It's increased a lot over the years, especially more and more in 2019 and 2020, there's just more and more Asian American voters participating in the voting process. And a lot of that has to do with the number of Asian American Pacific Islander individuals that run for public office, whether whether or not they're elected, mm. but with with seeing elected officials that reflect our a representative of certain communities, I guess. Yeah. So as that increases the number of Asian American Pacific Islander individuals, as they get into different levels of local, state, and national government, there just is more and more participation. And considering Asian Americans are the largest growing immigrant population, we've actually, I think, I forget what year it was, but we've passed the number of immigrants from Asia compared to Hispanic immigrants. We've surpassed that. So we're the fastest growing immigrant population, but historically we just don't participate as much as like the African-American community or the Hispanic community. Were you able to look up reasons why that is the case? Um, Specifically, I think it's for Asian Americans, I think it's that whole idea of being that model minority. You keep your head down, you focus on education, you focus on getting those jobs and things that we talked about the other week about just trying to gain that stability and get those high paying, stable jobs. I was reading an NPR article about that, about how we're focused, so focused on that. You can look at the stats and see that out of the immigrant populations, Asian Americans tend to be more well-educated and have those higher paying jobs. But because we're so focused on that and we don't want to rock the boat, because that seems to be a common theme among different Asian cultures, put your head down and just work towards those goals. That's the reason why I think Asian Americans generally haven't been involved in politics. Oh, that sort of sucks. Yeah. It almost almost seems like that's an excuse. Like, why does a successful career or education need to affect how you are involved or not involved in politics? I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's what we talk about a lot nowadays, right, with representation. When you don't see someone that looks like you or someone that represents interests that you have, it's less likely that you'll want to get involved in politics yourself. Something, Yeah, but... I I would almost argue that if you are trying to get an education to have a career in law or health, you would be in positions where you can represent certain people and affect certain policies. Yeah, and I think think that's becoming more common as Asian American Pacific Islander individuals start to become more involved because they're seeing more like trailblazers, essentially, that take those those elected positions right um they're running more for office um it's unfortunate it took like multiple decades to get to that point yeah definitely i was looking at some stats from that article i mentioned earlier we have in recent years uh in 2008 there was eight people running for congress asian americans running for congress and there was 10 in 2010 it was 30 in 2012, 39 in 2014, 40 in 2016, and over 80 Asian Americans running for Congress in 2018. So there's, I think there's more and more people that are slowly getting involved as they see people that look like them and people that represent their interests and stuff. And that's, it's, it's promising. It's, it's slow, but it's, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I, I have my own opinions against 
the use of the phrase model minority. I don't like using that word to describe Asians and describing their success story. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel like no one really likes that phrase, but I think that was something that was used to describe a lot of I feel like yeah. Asian Americans did not specifically use that to describe themselves, but I think a lot of people have used that to describe Asian Americans. <laughs> yeah, it's it's awful. People need to back off. <laughs> um, so me, when was do you remember like what your first experience with politics was? When was the first time you remember, I guess, hearing about politics? There were like first yeah. experience. Um, so my parents aren't too vocal about politics and their positioning but again when it affects them they'll they'll start to yell at the tv and whatnot <laughs> but because you know our last episode you heard that we didn't grow up wealthy i remember a lot during the 1992 clinton campaign my parents were really for clinton because he was running his campaign on welfare reform and i just remember that my dad was really into that because it would have helped people like us, people that needed this this safety net. How old were you in 92? Uh, Don't mean to reveal your age, but kind of important <laughs> for this conversation. How old was I? I, I was in 90, 93. <laughs> Let me that? count my fingers. I was five. So my memories are not that, I don't remember too much. You know, after that, six years or so, I was still in elementary mm. school, like fifth grade or something. It was the Clinton and oh, no. <laughs> Lewinsky scandal. I just remember seeing it all over the news. And then my my mom, I remember her saying things like, infidelity is bad. He shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't <laughs> have done that either. And to me, I didn't understand it as a child. I knew that there was this thing in the White House that was sort of glamorous, but I, I don't know. I don't think I understood why it was such an important hot debate. Like I couldn't connect why people's sexual relations had to affect the types of policies like welfare. I, I couldn't put the <laughs> two together. I just don't know. I don't know. Just thinking about that and comparing it to today, yeah. <laughs> that, that, was, that, that was nothing. I don't really like the yeah. whataboutism culture, but <laughs> it's just goofy thinking about it now. And I don't know, just on a human level, it, it was two consenting humans. Well, obviously, you probably yeah. know how I feel about it now. <laughs> Those are my two earliest memories, and they have, both have to do with Clinton. Really fun fact. <laughs> I think before the 90s, I believe, people generally did not care about whether or not their politicians had affairs or whatnot. I'm sure you remember, I'm sure in history class at some point, people talking about JFK and Marilyn Monroe, things like that. People like never really cared about it oh, yeah. up until the night. I forget if there's a specific politician where people started caring. I want to say it was the politician where there was a movie about it with Hugh Jackman or something. <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't until recent, I think, recently in the past decade or two where Americans actually cared about the personal lives of their politicians, which which is interesting. But was it Americans though, or was it just a party distraction? Uh, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> I, it's been years since I've taken that history class. So I don't remember, but yeah. I do remember specifically that before, like people did not care about their politicians' personal lives. Like they could be cheating on their wife and it doesn't matter. And I mean, like you can say nowadays to some extent, it doesn't matter either. I mean, it depends 
on how you view things and whether or not you think that affects <laughs> their policy making. But you know, different opinions on that. But, but yeah, it's I I've always thought that was fascinating that we start caring very like a, a lot about um, their personal lives and what kind of dresses they wore and whether or not their arms showed and you know. <laughs> yeah. If they're wearing a lapel pin representing yeah, yeah. the United States yeah, flag. Silly things like that, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think at the end of the day, people care about character and whether or not you fit the model of someone mm-hmm. who should lead the country. And if you have a bad character, maybe that affects yeah. how you make policy too. That. I'm not sure. Uh, what political experiences do you remember when you were younger? Uh, so I do remember only vaguely about the Clinton Lewinsky scandal thing. I was too young to remember anything about that, honestly. Um, I I remember hearing (laughs) about it, but I honestly don't remember very much from it. I'm sure my mom made comments about it. I don't remember them. But the one experience I remember distinctly is when Al Gore ran against uh, President George W. Bush in the 2000 election, the very hotly contested presidential run specifically because so Al Gore had a little I guess campaign I don't want to call it a rally because it was a it was kind of a community event I think and um, it was a campaign event at uh, Lakewood Park which was next to my school Lakewood Elementary and um, I was probably like 10 ish 9 10 um, at that time and uh, my class went um, I don't think it was a mandatory event or anything, but I went. Um, I, there's there's a photo of me somewhere in the newspaper, of the local newspaper, where I'm holding the sign cheering for Al Gore with all my braces and, like, nerdy glasses. It's great. And I still have the sign somewhere in my, like, collection of all my old school things. But I still remember being a big supporter of Al Gore and, like, yeah, Al Gore needs to win, blah, 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 which is funny because, like, at 10 years old, I, I feel like I wasn't, you know, very politically inclined to understand anything <laughs> about politics. I feel like a lot of yeah. a lot of my politics was very much influenced by my mom and like how what she yeah. supported and whatnot. But I mean, yeah. looking back at the key issues he ran on now, in retrospect, like not bad things to support. Um, so, what what were some examples of some things that you would say are really much in line? with how you would think about um, it. So, I mean, a lot of the th- things that Al Gore supported or ran on during that time, um, some key issues I remember my mom specifically talking about are things like helping out poorer families, things like giving more tax breaks to middle ca- class families instead of the tax breaks that we see now in big business, things like that, helping out the community, environmental issues. Those are some some things that I, when I glanced at it um when researching for this episode i was like oh yeah those are some things that i support now so that's that's good but yeah a lot of my politics i want to say was influenced by my mom who you know she supports the democratic party generally because she sees it as a party that supports and helps out lower income families i'm technically not a registered democrat um but i tend to vote more Democrat towards the Democratic side, just because similar policies. Um, more on the social welfare behalf. Yeah, there are certain things that prog- more progressive candidates like to campaign on that I'm like, eh, maybe not so much. But I, t- <laughs> I tend to lean more left, I suppose. 
So when it comes to politics and whatnot, um, you mentioned the Clinton campaign and the Clinton scandal and everything. Um, but do you remember the first time you were actually actively involved in politics? Yeah, I think a lot of that was actually when I was in university and I'm showing my age now, like <laughs> around in 2008 was also the time when social media was really taking yeah. off. But in this one in particular was for Proposition 8 in California titled Prop 8 Eliminates Right of Same-Sex Couples to Marry. I remember a lot of confusion oh, yeah. around that wording. Yeah, like was it for same-sex couples to marry or against it? Why is the wording so Wait, weird? Wait, can you the wording one more time? Yeah, California Proposition 8, the Eliminates Right of Same-Sex Couples to Marry initiative. So that means it was against gay marriage, essentially. Yeah, voters basically <laughs> approved the measure and made same-sex marriage illegal in California. Oh, no. Yep. I do remember that being super confusing. Thinking back about it now, I remember I support same-sex marriage, but I don't remember yeah. whether or not I was voting for or against. I just remember being confused about the wording of what. Yeah, yeah. It was, at least on, on, on my campus, there was essentially a plaza where you would get a lot of the tents set up for throwing out information on these propositions and i remember everywhere there it was just so much in prop 8 i feel like the majority of the people were for same sex but i'm not sure if they were able to completely clarify like what voting yes means and what voting no means um but just for information on the results like the votes to say yes was 7 million, about 52%, and no was like 6.4 million, about 47%. It was pretty close. Uh, just a footnote, the federal judge ruled Prop 8 unconstitutional two years later. Mm -hmm. So yeah, then people were able to, to marry again. That's good, because <laughs> people should just be able to marry whoever the hell they want to marry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor at the time, he had some things to say about it, too. What did he say? I don't remember. He, I don't remember much, yeah, except, he, like, I was like, what? The Terminator is, is the governor? <laughs> <laughs> he believed that it was a waste of time. He thought that we needed a constitutional amendment so that foreign-born citizens can run for president, but not about gay marriage. Oh, interesting. Huh. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of a waste of time. Like, what does it matter who that other person marries you're not involved in their relationship but uh <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna reserve a lot of my feelings about <laughs> the whole thing there. <laughs> so that was one of my earlier involvements in politics was actually caring about something wholeheartedly and hoping to get the same rights for other people i care about people having the basic human right of marrying who they want what about you what what were you involved in earlier on I think Prop 8 was probably one of the first things I remember as well um, being involved in. I wasn't particularly, I mean, I guess I wasn't super involved in any kind of group organizing about being against Prop 8 or anything. I do remember a funny story that I'm going to share with you because I it, it, it actually was my first experience of, I guess, discussing politics with someone that 
had a completely different political view than I did. Growing up in the Bay Area, surrounded by a lot of liberal views and everyone essentially is pretty pretty much a Democrat, I want to say, in the Bay Area, at least the, the groups I suppose I hung out with or the groups I encountered. So I with the whole Prop 8 thing, I was also in college and I remember biking home from class and I guess my neighbor had ended class at the same time. So we biked home at the same time. And I remember talking to her like, oh yeah, did you vote? And she's like, yeah, I did vote. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I can't believe we're voting on Prop 8. That's so silly. Like, why would anyone care about whoever someone else is marrying? Why, why would that even matter? Why would anyone care about that? Yeah, how's that affect your life? Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, no one should support Prop 8 because gay marriage should be a thing. And then my neighbor was like, oh, yeah, well, I voted for it. And they're like, oh. And it was the most awkward like minute of my life, but fumbling with my keys and trying to lock my bike and get into the house as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, that's, that's I, I suppose, kind of my first political experience. I, I want to say the more significant one was when I – interned for an NGO called Public Citizen, and I was part of their Access to Medicines division. When working for them, we participated in a protest against Big Pharma. And I was 22 at the time. And even then, I was just like, what is, what is protesting for? Like, why are we on the streets <laughs> carrying these signs. I don't want to be part of this protest. I mean, like I supported the issues, but it was it was just a weird thing to me. I mean, it was such a foreign concept to, to be protesting for anything just because I didn't at the time think it was effective because, you know, I'm, I'm used to like, like doing actual things that have, I don't know, an effect to some extent. I kind of expect like an input output kind of thing. Like, like an immediate effect. Yeah, exactly. Whereas protesting to me, in my mind, wasn't effective. Whereas now it's like, okay, I understand why people protest and why it's important, which is ironic because I, you know, I was a history major, so I should know the history of protest and why it is important. But at the time, I was like, uh, protesting. That's so weird. <laughs> well, now that you sort of put yourself on the spot, why do people protest and why is it important? Um, well, protesting is important because it, it brings light to certain issues that people otherwise might not know about, might not willingly discuss. Some, I'm sure some common modern day protests that you've seen is the, the Women's March that happened uh, right after President Trump got elected. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some other hot ones like uh, Colin Kaepernick taking the knee during football games to protest police violence against African-Americans, things like that. So I think protesting is, is a good way to bring light to certain issues that otherwise would not be discussed. Yeah, I see protests as a good way of making political statements. And exactly as you said, like bringing light to issues that need awareness. I feel like it's one of the possibly easier things to do to start a cause yeah what do you think about petitions though because i i feel like that's another thing that i saw a lot in in school there's you know those change.org petitions or like uh, petitions to add a proposition on a on the ballot what do you think about those um i think there's there's probably different levels of petitions like uh, to address something local or something larger. I don't know. I think 
there's there's like petitions that I would see on the street where people would walk up to me with a clipboard and I I'm really I try to avoid Run those away. types of people. <laughs> yeah, for for no other particular reason than I I don't like talking to strangers and Maybe if they just handed me their card, I'd look it up later, but I don't trust myself to even do that. But it's not like I don't care about the whales, you know? Those whales move you, me. And then there's petitions that are virtual, like uh, that you would see on change.org or something that make it pretty easy for you to just to sign your name. I think, I don't know what the ratio is for successful petitions or, you know, petitions that fail. And I think a lot of it has to do with how much effort people are putting behind it and what their their cause actually is i do believe in really strong petitions to make change like one change.org thing that i signed was to recall judge aaron persky oh yeah i remember that one you guys remember the people versus turner case back in 2015 yeah it was a it was a, a a rape case on that happened on the Stanford campus, and the judge Aaron Persky sat on the Superior Court of California in Santa Clara. Just gave him like a six months prison sentencing, which was ridiculous. Pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So that angered a lot of people, including me. I don't know if petitions are more successful if they can rile up people's emotions and cause a lot of upward trajectory. What about you? Do you have strong <laughs> opinions about petitions? I think I agree with what you said earlier, that there are different levels of petitions. I I think nowadays I don't generally participate in the change.org petitions very much anymore. I remember when it first came out, it was like, yeah, I'm going to make a difference, right? <laughs> sign this, yeah. sign that. Um, and like I, I, I think what you said earlier too about 2008 being like, the the time where social media like kicked off and everything because I remember there I mean this isn't a petition but uh you know how people were wearing different colored shirts to bring awareness to different things I think Mm -hmm. the change.org when it first started was a very good thing to get people involved but I'm not sure how effective it is now I have signed petitions to put certain propositions and um, whatnot on on the ballot. I don't remember what they are anymore, but I do remember signing a petition and, you know, you have to write down your name and then what county you live in and your email address and your phone number to make sure you're a real person kind of thing. Seeing that proposition later on the ballot. So, you know, that kind of stuff I think is effective. I'm not sure change.org is effective anymore. I could be wrong. Uh, Like you said, I, I don't know the stats on that, unfortunately. Yeah, and and I don't know if um there's any legal power behind it other than possibly in legal terms you need like x amount of people to support something before it can even begin. Like I I don't know too much about the signature requirements and Yeah, if, I think for I don't know, you yeah, how do you count like a real signature versus like a Yeah, paper? I think proposi- <laughs> like things to be placed on the ballot, there is a specific percentage of people that you do need to get a certain amount of signatures you do need to get before that proposition is allowed on a ballot, which is why I think it's it's effective in the sense that if you get enough people to sign it, then it will end up on the ballot, right? But in terms of like things like change.org, I see a lot of my friends post things sometimes where it's like you show your support, sign your name and write a note or comment about why you're supporting that petition. I think to some extent I mean, I suppose that could be something that's useful 
to maybe bring to you your congressional representatives um, yeah I, I was gonna exactly I was gonna say the same thing if you could prove that this many number of people actually really care about this thing it's it means something yeah it has power if if you can prove that this many people agree or disagree with this thing that you have power the power to change you should not take it lightly right but I'm not sure how many of those things actually make it to the people that make those decisions right with with the the recall of Aaron Persky I'm not sure what the steps were to because I I do remember signing that petition as well like I don't know the steps to how that came about like was it just signed by a bunch of people and then was it brought up to a representative in Santa Clara County and then the person was recalled or what exactly happened because I'd imagine it yeah. had to be brought up to the voters of Santa Clara County, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people from all over the U.S. when they heard the story, they signed that petition on change.org. It's an yeah. upsetting story. But, you know, if you're not part of that district, you're not part of that county, then you really shouldn't have a voice about what happens in that county. Yeah, he, he got recalled in 2018 by voters in the California primary elections. So. Right. So I'm curious. We, should, we probably should have researched this, but I'm, I'm sure there is like specific like what you said earlier, there is specific levels to when it gets that visibility and whether that visibility mm-hmm. actually leads to a certain action and gets it pushed to um, a, someone that actually can do something about it instead of just being like a useless signature online. Not to mention, you know, there's always bots and stuff. So um, speaking of. Do you remember a time when something in politics just hit you the hardest? When did politics make a big impact in your life? Oh, like emotionally? (laughs) I mean, physically, with your work, whatever. I feel like, okay, so one case that impacted me so emotionally that it affected me pretty much physically too. And no joke about that, like I felt sick to my stomach, was um, the morning I woke up, saw the news that Trump had won the presidency. I I still had to go to work that morning, tr- try to get through my no- morning routine. And when I got outside and started walking to work, I just felt like the world had betrayed me. And I was looking at everyone's face that I passed, and I felt like I was living in a city or a life that was unfamiliar to me like I just felt like I lost something and I felt betrayed it was a really awful feeling to have and I was I was pretty emotional that day I don't know I just I did not feel good I powered through it somehow probably because I was able to talk about it with some of my coworkers and friends. So you mentioned like you looked at people as if they they had betrayed you. Yeah. The Bay Area tends to be pretty liberal and, you know, democratic leaning. Um what what caused that emotion in you? Like what made you think like, "Oh, it's these people. <laughs> it's their fault." Yeah, I don't think I blame any one person in particular. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I was betrayed. And I manifested that in other people's faces. Right. And like, it was you, like, maybe it was possibly you. Like, maybe, like, do you not care about me? Or do you not care about women? Do you not care about basic human rights? Do you not care about honesty and truth? Like, it, yeah, it was unfair of me to look at people like that. That felt really gross and empty inside. Yeah, I feel like I felt the same way too. I, I want to say that was 
I also share that experience of that was when the news hit me the hardest. It was also the, the 2016 election. The thing that affected me the most was I had just moved out of the Bay Area and I moved to Denver, Colorado. Um, so I was out of the Bay Area bubble. And prior to moving, I did not look about look at politics as something that affected my life just because I'd grown up the entire the entirety of my life was in the Bay Area or in Davis. Both places were, you know, liberal cities, a lot of liberal views. And I had heard news from friends and friends of friends and, you know, news reports and just articles everywhere about because President Trump had been elected, there was an uptick in violence against Asian Americans. And I didn't know anything about Denver. I had moved there. I think maybe a couple months before, maybe two months before, and I was terrified. I I didn't know anyone in Denver. I I had just picked up my stuff and decided to move to Denver, Colorado, just because. So I was I was really scared. I didn't leave my apartment four days. I talked to my manager at work because she was asking how I was feeling because she understood, mm-hmm. um, and I cried on the phone with her and told her mm-hmm. like I was I was scared. I I didn't know whether or not it was safe to leave the house because I didn't want to be attacked by random people just because I'm Asian, which I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of Asian Americans feel now. Yeah. During the (laughs) COVID-19. So it's, it was a scary time for sure. It was awful. No, I just, every time I think back about that and how I feel, it's, it's, I don't know, I wouldn't say raw. It's just still very real. I, that was definitely when I realized the extent to how deep of a bubble I yeah. lived in. There are extreme views that exist outside of me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I had the same reaction, especially since I moved out of the Bay like physically moved out of the barrier bubble. It was such a shocking experience to me. I mean, Denver is is pretty liberal compared to a lot of parts in Colorado. But um, it, it was shocking it, and it was, it was terrifying because I, I didn't know what that meant. And I think that was the first time that I really realized how much politics could affect me, um, especially with the different nominations, like the, the coming months afterwards, the different nominations of different people to the different um, departments, uh, like Department of Education, the different secretaries and whatnot. Seeing that and seeing how they were able to affect policy, that's that's when I was like, oh, okay, well, politics is something that I probably should pay attention to because it does affect my life. Yeah, yeah that, that, that was definitely when I started paying way more attention to politics, which, I don't know, good or bad. I probably should have been doing it earlier, but it, it opened my eyes. I'm an adult. I should be a, a proper citizen and <laughs> follow this political news. Yeah, I mean, I've been voting. Just being informed on the things that are happening around me, I think, is really important, too. So not just voting, but being informed of things that are happening across the nation, um, if not just locally. Yeah, it definitely, I think nowadays after the 2016 election, I pay a lot of attention specifically to local politics now. I just recently moved to Oregon, so I don't know anything about local politics, but um, <laughs> it's a slow learning progress, uh, process. But um, yeah, it, you know, something I actually 
learned recently is you know like in california you get those those voting pamphlets that get sent to you before you get your ballot yeah it looks like uh like a trader joe's recycled <laughs> yeah. catalog yeah essentially like this, this <laughs> booklet that tells you about all the propositions and all the yep. the candidates that are running for like district yeah. courts and and whatnot um that is something that actually not every state has yeah every state is different in terms of even how they vote it's it's ridiculous how it's not standardized. I think it's good in certain ways that it's not standardized, but bad in the sense that not everyone gets that kind of information. I didn't realize that wasn't something that every state had just because the three states that I have lived in, all of them provide that information. Like California did, Colorado did, and Oregon. I just got my um, little pamphlet probably like two weeks ago because we have we have a primary coming up. I, I still have to read through all that stuff. But, you know, that's something that, that I was just so used to and I, I feel like kind of privileged to get that information. That's that's the bad thing, right? Like not every state has that information. Yeah, I, I feel like really basic things like that, being informed on what is being voted on should be standardized. Yeah, it, it definitely, it'd be good for voters to be informed. And I mean, this is a longer conversation, but I feel a lot of that has to do with the American education system. Like, I feel like I was very lucky to have excellent history and government teachers in grade school as well as at university, but not everyone has that. And when you don't have that background, it's kind of hard to see why politics is something that's important and why it affects your life. Yeah, but I mean, the standardization of it has nothing to do with the education system though i don't think i think i think the standardization of it has probably everything to do with politics too if anything it's removing information yes and no so i think yes we definitely need the standardization of like being able to present to voters that information i think that part would be good things like little nuances like how each state runs their primary, I don't think is as important. I don't know. My mind can change if I learn more about it. But I think having that information is important, but also learning how to use that information is is important. Because I, I, I'm pretty sure we have some friends that get those voter booklets and they don't care. Like they're like, oh, why is voting important? You know? So yeah. I think that I mean, education bit is is why it's important. I think it, that's the part that's missing from the American education system because there isn't a focus on on why politics are important to our lives. Because I mean, like I'm sure you've heard things from people when we have conversations. Do you remember that sleepover that one time when <laughs> when I just had it to talk about <laughs> politics and someone was like, "I don't want to talk about politics." It, it's, I just don't like them. I didn't come here to drink and talk about politics. But you know what I mean? Because it's, it, it's such a privilege to say that you don't want to talk about politics because politics is involved in so many aspects of everyone's lives. Yeah. I, again, I just want to reiterate that removing information is not something that I'm I okay with. I completely agree with that yeah. bit. I guess I'm, I'm thinking more of nuances of like when people run their primaries and whether or not they're having primaries versus um, caucuses and, and things like that. I think that's what I think about when I think of standardizing things and voting. But I completely yeah. agree. Having more information is better than not having any information. Yeah. <laughs> what is this thing? Uh, so we've been talking about like uh, voting in, I don't know, campaigns or like local primary things. What about 
this thing called a census that happens every 10 years as opposed to like every two oh or four my goodness. years. Guys, the census is very, very important. So I want everyone to write this down. 2020census.gov. That's 2020census.gov. Everyone needs to take the census. The census is incredibly important because it's it's the one time every 10 years, every decade that the government takes in information to learn about our communities. It's important for congressional representation. It's important for redistricting, figuring out what our community needs and how that's how the federal government decides to fund our communities essentially. It's important for things like libraries, the school public school system, it's important for businesses to have that information so they know how to serve their communities. It's important for highways. It's important for all those different things. And it's super simple. And it's honestly a long process for the government to find all that information because they're trying to get everyone. They're trying to count everyone in every household. And I know there's been a lot of fear around filling out census information for people that are potentially undocumented. Oh, yeah. Someone tried to get on marking if you are a documented citizen. Yes. They removed that question from the census, which is good because that part is not important at all. But the census is really crucial for federal funding, essentially. And there's a lot of people in a lot of communities that don't have their voices heard. We need to make sure that, especially considering like with the House of Representatives in, in DC, our house is capped at 435 representatives. And if we're not counting specific communities or people in specific communities, your area might be redistricted. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's the whole conversation about gerrymandering and all that stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what about gerrymandering? Yeah, that's a longer <laughs> conversation. But generally, it's it's good for us to have that information to know how to properly fund specific areas and know that, you know, we, we talked about la last podcast about being able to to have people represent you properly in schools and stuff, someone with mm -hmm. similar cultural values or, or someone that understands those cultural values. Having that representation is super important. And part of that has, happens to deal with the census population and redistricting and all that fun stuff. So if you haven't done it yet, fill out the census. Yeah, and I do know that the census has language support. I think there's 13 different languages, European and Asian languages. They even have uh, American Sign Language and Braille, so yeah, very accessible. Super well. accessible. I actually wanted to sign up to be a census taker because I speak Vietnamese and I would like to help out the Vietnamese community. But, you know, with the COVID-19 stuff, census takers are kind of – not going out yet. I did see some update on the census site that they're slowly going to have field workers come out and deal with the whole census stuff, but that's for another time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of language support and you shouldn't let a language barrier prevent you from telling the government that, you know, you're there and you need someone to represent you. Do you know if there's statistics on... Um, the people of color community not necessarily filling out the census forms? Like, wh what is that gap there? 
Yeah, there, there is some information that was presented by the U.S. Census Bureau that talks about Asian Americans um, and their involvement with the census. And only 55% of Asian Americans said they were extremely or very likely to fill out the census form. I think that's low. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's, that's better than our 30% uh, rate of voter participation. <laughs> That's true. I mean, getting getting closer to 100%. Yeah, I mean, it would be <laughs> nice if everyone filled it out. But so only 55% yeah. of Asian Americans said that they were extremely or very likely to fill out the census. And if you look at some other data that the Census Bureau um, found when they surveyed just different ethnic groups and found that 41% of Asian Americans expressed concern that their answers to the U.S. Census would be used against them. And then 53% of Asian Americans believed that taking the census would not be personally beneficial to them, which is completely not true, right? I mean, I, I guess to some extent, it's it's a catch-22. There's a lot of politicians that don't include the Asian American group within their speeches and their policies. And, and, and so it, Asian Americans, as a result, are not as involved in politics and because they're not as involved in politics a bunch of congressmen are less likely to include them when forming policies or just talking about different things that might affect the community that's actually something that's i've found very frustrating when i've listened to campaign speeches for like congressional senators and and house representatives and you know, presidential candidates recently with the Democrats. I remember listening to speeches and hearing people talk about like the the African American community, the Hispanic Latino community, the poor working class family, like white families in the Midwest. Like those are always the groups people talk about, but very rarely will someone bring up the Asian American community, which always frustrates me because I remember listening to debates and they'll list out all those different communities. And then I'll just out loud say to the TV, but what about Asians? <laughs> <laughs> We're people too. We've been here for a while. Right. Um, and like we said earlier, the Asian American population in the United States is the fastest growing immigrant population in the U.S., surpassing the Hispanic population. So, you know, huge population and we're a huge voting block. Um, and of course, we all have different views and we don't necessarily need to vote the same way. but you know, it's it's a huge t- chunk of the electorate that people are missing out on. And I think a lot of it has to do with that catch 22 of like, we need to participate more for people to pay attention to us, but we don't want to participate unless people pay attention to us. And, you know, like the census is a great way for Asian Americans to have their voices heard. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, out of four groups that they surveyed, Black, White, Hispanic, Asian, Asian Americans are the least likely to be familiar with the U.S. Census and what it does. 38% of Asian Americans said that they were either not too familiar or not familiar at all with the census. If we don't know what it's about, then it makes sense that we're not participating, right? Um, Some of that has to do with language barrier, but again, it has to do with, I think, the fact that we're not involved in politics and people in politics don't really involve us. Yep, it's unfortunate. Hopefully... The uh, Asian American outreach gets better. The community is like 20 million people and growing, as you said. Yeah, it's 
But speaking of getting people to represent us, me, have you ever contacted a congressional representative? I haven't. Possibly guilty there. <laughs> I don't know. Something about picking up a phone seems intimidating to me because I, I'm non-confrontational and I try to avoid talking to people in general. Picking up a phone sounds frightening it to me. It is a terrifying thing. I, I feel like the first time I called a congressional representative was during, I believe, 2016 when different cabinet members were being appointed. And I specifically called... I was living in Colorado, so I called Senator Cory Gardner, who I think is a pansy. <laughs> I called him specifically because I wanted him to vote against current secretary, education secretary, Betsy DeVos. I think she was completely unqualified, not even underqualified, but completely unqualified for the position. And as you can see, she is completely unqualified for the position. She's destroying the education department. But something that I learned about contacting congressional representatives is you do not actually have to call them. You can mail them a letter, email them. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you said you did call? I did call and I left a message. Oh, you have to leave a message. How do you know if they actually listen to you or read your letters or your emails? Um, usually you get a kind of canned response, which sounds kind of shitty, but honestly, it's it's what they have to do, right? Because they're going to get lots of calls from constituents. So if you write a letter, you will get a letter back usually. If you write an email, you get an email back. For phone calls, I don't think I ever got a phone call back. I don't know if you do get phone calls back, but there are people that do. It's their job to listen to these messages, like a, a lot of interns and congressional aides and whatnot. They'll, they'll listen and talk to the congressmen or congresswomen about the concerns of, of their constituents. So there's not like a guaranteed way if you phone call and you leave a message kind of thing, but it, it is, there yeah. are people that it's their job to listen to those things and report back. Yeah, that's cool. I should, I, I know that this, the information to contact people of certain positions uh, is available publicly. Uh, definitely something I should do. It seems pretty low, low barrier. It's definitely something that's kind of terrifying, honestly. And sometimes I am hesitant to do it because I don't like talking on the phone either, despite the fact that I talk forever. <laughs> Something that I have found helpful is you can honestly just Google if it's if it's a if it's an issue that is important to a lot of people, you'll see kind of like templates that you can just Google mm -hmm. um, and they'll yeah. they'll tell you how to talk about it, right? You don't have to have a super specific to yourself letter or little speech. I, I mean, you can personalize it if you'd like. Um, but if you know if you're someone that is nervous about just presenting that information over the phone um you can just read off a script or you can just copy an email there's there's a lot of templates that you can just google something that i have found helpful um recently i submitted an email to my congressional representatives for oregon both senators and the house representative for my district there is a little text bot that is called ResistBot um, that I've used where it's just like a simple text message. You just text the the little text bot and it, it asks you what your zip code is 
and then it'll tell you exactly what who your representatives are and you know what kind of messages you want to send it, it basically guides you through that kind of thing and the and oh, emails nice. or faxes or whatever it is super important i just recently used it to send a letter to my congressman about saving the usps which i thought was super important so you can if you guys would like to try it out you would just text resist r-e-s-i-s-t to 50409 and it'll help you contact your representatives with like the whole script and everything so it's super helpful Awesome. Thanks for sharing that resource. I didn't know about it. It's super helpful. And it's especially for people that are very hesitant to contact their representatives because they get stage fright, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. I, I, I'm very used to doing that stuff now, but I still, I still need a script um, to at least work off of. Yeah. I think also one thing that I get hesitant about is if I do have to correspond, do an actual full-on conversation, making sure I'm saying the right mm. things and have my facts straight and possibly defending my position, like that 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 whole thing sounds terrifying to me. Yeah, it's definitely a little scary, but I think as you continue to do it, it gets a little less scary. I mean, to some extent, it will always be a little nerve-wracking, right? You're talking to a random person. But, you know, these these people are just people and they're they're – there to work for you. They're there because your tax dollars have put them in that position and they need to listen to you and what your opinions are. They may not necessarily vote your way all the time, but they're there to listen to your opinions and what you think would be best for your district or your state or your country. <laughs> so, Jagger, we talked a lot about basic experiences with politics, but we didn't get too deep into any one particular type of politic yeah the different <laughs> ideologies and and different yeah like a, a subtopic um one that's pretty relevant right now is health so i think that it'd be good for us to talk more about health in our next episode yeah i think that sounds good i have a lot of thoughts about healthcare. i'm sure you do as well and i'm sure it'll take up the full hour or something minutes <laughs> <laughs> to talk about healthcare. I'm excited for that. Yeah, I am too. I hope that this episode was helpful in letting you guys learn a couple of things that you didn't and to bring up questions to ask your friends and family about your experiences with politics when you were younger and how you feel about things now. Yeah, so email us your thoughts. Tweet us your thoughts. Um, we're at poorpeoplepodcast at gmail or you can tweet us at poorpeoplepodcast. Mm -hmm. Um, tell us about your first political experiences when you were involved in politics, why you're involved in politics now or why you're not. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your experiences and see how they're similar or different from ours. Yeah, I love learning about different people and their experiences and how their parents influenced them, how even when, where they went to university and the people around them and what bubbles they lived in uh, sort of shape how they think about certain policies today. Yeah, definitely. So that's it for this week. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you guys next week when we chat about healthcare. Bye. See you next time. Bye-bye.